lost a loved one recently? Do you find it hard to move on with your life? There are lots of questions and a quest for a solution. Where do you start? Welcome to From Morning to Morning with your host, Rabbi Mel Glazer. Rabbi Mel and his guests are here to guide you through the different stages of grief and help you heal from your loss. You'll come away with a much better understanding of how you can move forward. Now, here's Rabbi Mel. Good evening, my friends. This is Rabbi Mel. I'm back. I was sick last week, so you didn't hear me live, but um, it was a good encore. I listened, and I feel much better, and here we are together. I want to wish all my Christian friends a Merry Christmas, and I hope that your a family celebration was joyful and happy and uh, fattening with all that uh, food that you must have eaten. Uh, but before, and I want to talk about those of you who were sitting around the table mourning a loved one. But before I do that, I, I feel like I need to talk about uh, two people who died this past week. And you all know who I'm talking about. Carrie Fisher uh, died, and then her mother, Debbie Reynolds, died the day after. Debbie was on a plane on the way to... Carrie's funeral. So it's so sad. I mean, uh, who can imagine? Who can imagine? Now, I was reading one of the websites that I read regularly every week, and the question was asked, can you die from grief? Well, for Debbie Reynolds, the answer was obviously yes. So I thought about that, I mulled that over a little bit and wondered to myself, well, who else would die from grief? Most people don't, but I've come up with at least two categories of people who might die of the grief from the death of a loved one. One, if you're the caregiver for someone And let's say you're a caregiver for three years. Uh, And let's say you really don't have a life outside of being a caregiver. And you spend every single day in the hospital or in the hospice or in the rehab facilities and taking care of whomever it is that you're taking care of. And we've talked about this before and how frustrating it is because Most of the time we'll go in somewhere and spend the whole day with mama or daddy or whoever it is, and there's not a whole lot to do. They've got nurses and doctors who take care of them. So we sit there the whole day, and at 5 o'clock or 6 o'clock we're exhausted. And we come home and we just want to go to bed because we don't know what else to do. And... We haven't done very much, and we're exhausted. And the next day comes, and we get up in the morning, and we go back to the hospital, we go back to the hospice, we go back to the rehab place, and we do the same routine all over again. Well, I could well imagine that a caregiver like this, when mama dies, you just lose it. You just let yourself die, too. When a loved one dies, 
that you were in charge of their care. And there's not much else you can do about it. And you don't have a life because you spent the last two, three years uh, giving your life over to your loved one. Well, you know, maybe you will yourself to die. I don't know. The second possible category, Debbie Reynolds was in her 80s, and she was certainly at the end of her career, and she wasn't doing performances like she, you know, used to in her prime, and she saw herself, perhaps, in her daughter, Carrie. So, Carrie was a wonderful performer and entertainer and actress and all the rest that you've read about in the last two days. And maybe I'm just wondering, when Carrie died, so Debbie Reynolds was just so, so sad because Debbie Reynolds' life was about to, you know, nearing its end. And when Carrie died... So what else did Debbie have to live for? And Debbie willed herself to die. And I believe, and you know we've talked about it on this show, that when you're in that extreme kind of grief, you can will yourself to die. It's just so very sad. I mean, mother's on the plane on the way to daughter's funeral, and mother dies. Oh, I can't even imagine. How awful it must be. So my, my prayers go to the entire family. Um, it's, it's something that I, I can't even imagine. And I don't ever want to have to imagine that. And you don't either. But sometimes it happens. And when it happens, I need to talk about it. So that was sort of an introduction. Now... That was the first introduction. The second introduction was at the very beginning of the show when I welcomed you and I said hello and wished you all a Merry Christmas and all my Jewish friends, I wish a happy Hanukkah. We're still in Hanukkah for a few more days. So how do we celebrate these festivals? We sit down at the table as a family and we have delicious meals together. Now, I wanted to say all this last week before Christmas, but I couldn't because I was not feeling well. But everything that I'm going to say uh, about Christmas deals with, it's generic. Anytime the family sits down at a meal and there's somebody missing who, who isn't there this year because they died, and you don't know what to do. You just don't know what to do. Later on, I'm going to read a section from my book about the empty chairs around the holiday table. And as I said before, this could be uh, before or after Christmas or Hanukkah or Passover or Easter or a birthday or an anniversary, you name it, and... It, it doesn't feel right without that loved one sitting with you. So first thing I want to do is, is I came across 
um, uh, uh, something that's called the first Christmas after a death. It's written by a lady by the name of Susan Dunn, who's a personal life coach. I'll read it and I'll comment on it and then I'll read from my book and I'll comment on that as well. So the first Christmas after a death. The Christmas cards, one of the women in the group said, and all the heads nodded slowly. We'd come together to talk about getting through the first Christmas after a loved one's death. The brochure had said the first Christmas after, but some of us read it wrong. Grief knows no time frame. I've, I've tried to teach you that before. Uh, in our Jewish tradition, we have a wonderful Hasidic phrase, there is no clock for the soul. That is what she says, grief knows no time frame. So I've yelled at people for saying things like, you should be over her already. Aren't you mourning too long? Or how can you get over it so quickly? Grief knows no time frame. There's no clock for the soul. Let me go on. Christmas cards, I thought, my stomach churning. I remembered the first Christmas after my son had died. What happened this year, that's what you always write about. What happened this year is Chet died. There were no Christmas cards that year. The woman sitting in front of me turned and whispered, my poor mother, can you imagine what it will be like to not sign Martha and Fred after 40 years? I could not imagine. The leader kept trying to get us to talk about coping, but all we wanted to do was talk about our loved ones. It is so sweet to hear their name. Some things that can be said about that first Christmas, or whichever one it is, cause it could be the second or the third, or any dinner, doesn't even have to be a holiday dinner. I don't know that they'll help, but here they are. And she has some tips for us. She has um, 10 tips. Number one, when we grieve, we have no energy. Decisions are hard to make. The smallest chore seems monumental. Ordinarily joyous things are not. Things that used to bother you don't bother you anymore. You don't defend yourself well. To pretend takes too much effort and you need lots of rest. You will seek the solace of sleep. She's right, isn't she? You know the truth of that. Sometimes when somebody dies, all we want to do, all we need to do is sleep. We got to sleep. Sleep energizes our bodies and helps our immune systems. So don't feel badly. Well, when somebody dies, you don't have to feel badly about anything. 
But don't feel badly if you feel like you have to sleep for four hours in the middle of the day. Just because you do. Number two, take care of yourself physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually. Supplements, eating right, rest, talking to someone, keeping your obligations manageable, and getting exercise. Your immune system will be shot. Outsource it. Therapy and support groups bolster your immune system. And as I've said many times, you've heard me say, you got to talk to somebody about it. Don't talk to somebody who doesn't know what you're talking about. Don't talk to anybody that never lost anybody. Find a friend that you can talk to, whether it's your grief group, whether it's your minister, rabbi, pastor, imam. Talk to somebody. You got to help. You got to start getting it off your chest because you can't walk around with it. Remember the story I love to tell about the two Zen monks and and uh, the end of the story is, you know, I laid her down three hours ago. Why are you still carrying her? You can't carry them forever. You got to begin to lay them down. And the best way to do that is to begin to talk about them. Number three, you can cancel Christmas if you want to. Sleep, take a walk, or study something intellectual. Why not? If you think that it's going to be so painful, you're just not going to be able to do it, then cancel Christmas. Don't go. I can't go. Sorry. And if somebody doesn't understand, it's their problem, not your problem. If you can't go to a family affair because you are so in grief because of the death of a loved one, then that's it. You can't go, period. Because if you go, you're going to sit and cry all night, and that's not going to be good for anybody. Tip number four, you can also change the venue. Celebrate on a cruise or in a hotel. If the place is different, you might begin to feel different. Five, people want to help you and they don't know how. Nothing will help. You just want them back. But let others do something. If they ask you, what can they do? And you can't think of anything, ask them to do something. They'll figure it out. Everyone knows houses must be cleaned, dogs walked, groceries bought, and meals prepared. So ask them to do something, and they will, and that will help you. Tip number six, alcohol doesn't help anything, period. Alcohol doesn't help anything, because why not? Because it hides your true emotions, that's number one. Number two, because when you get drunk, you think you're better. But you're not better. Uh, You still feel crummy. So don't do alcohol, and don't have an affair, and don't start smoking cigarettes or pot or 
or, or cocaine or drugs or anything like that. Because that just hides the real you and you can't hide the real you. Tip number seven, explain what you need. One woman wanted to have the traditional celebration in her home the first year and another couldn't handle it at all. Half the women who lost husbands wanted to be called a widow. The other half hated the word. How can people know unless you tell them? Wow. Who would have thunk? But it's true. Say to them, if I get up and leave the table, just let me go. I'll be okay. I'll come back when I'm ready. You have to take control of yourself. Nobody's in charge of you ever, 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 ever. Especially when you're a griever, a mourner, mourning the loss of someone else. Well, I'll get to um, the last tips uh, right after the break. We got a little break here. Stick around. I'll be right back. Bye-bye. what makes the most successful people tick. Keep listening to the Voice America Empowerment Channel. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com Believe it or not, the Bible talks a lot about grief and healing and can be a powerful source for us to move forward. For example, after Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt where they'd been slaves, they wandered in the desert for 40 years before God would let them into the promised land. God only wanted those who'd been born free, who'd never known slavery, to enter Israel. Those who had been slaves had to die out before their descendants would be allowed to enter the Promised Land. Find out more in Rabbi Mel Glazer's award-winning book, And God Created Hope. Available at Amazon and in Kindle format. When you're wandering after a life loss, you're really wandering in two directions at the same time. Part of you wants to go back, and part of you wants to go forward. That was also true of the Israelites when they were wandering in the desert with Moses. They didn't want to go back to being slaves, of course, but they did want to go back to the familiarity of home in Egypt. It was predictable and known, and they were afraid, like everyone is, of the unknown. Find out more in Rabbi Mel Glazer's award-winning book, A GPS for Grief and Healing, available at Amazon and in Kindle format. Success starts here. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. It's your world. You are listening to From Morning to Morning. To find out more about our program, visit GriefOK.com. Again, that's GriefOK.com. Now, back to From Morning to Morning. Hi, this is Rabbi Mel again. We are talking about what you do after a holiday 
meal like Christmas or Hanukkah or, or Rosh Hashanah or Passover or Easter or a birthday party or whatever. Okay, so um, I'm reading some tips from a lady by the name of Susan Dunn, which is called The First Christmas After a Death. And we've done the first seven. So tip number eight, you might get some relief helping others, serving dinner to the homeless or buying gifts for a needy family. Now, why would you do that? The rabbi asks, because it takes, it, it puts you, it gives you power back by allowing you to take care of somebody else. You're not the only mourner in the world. There are other, everybody's in mourning. Everybody that you know is mourning the loss of something or someone. You just don't know who it is. And you're too nice to ask because we don't do that. So one of the things that you can do is help other people. The homeless are mourning. You know that. That's clear. You don't have to think about that. Uh, buying gifts for a needy family. You know some needy families. You know, spend less on, on your own family's Christmas presents next year and, and buy some presents for a needy family. You will feel like you are doing something good, which will have an effect on how lousy you feel. Tip number nine. What will you do with their Christmas stocking? One of the many jolts you'll get at this time will happen when it's time to hang up the stockings. One woman set her husband's Christmas stocking with a journal beside it, inviting visitors to write in it. Another slept with her daughter's stocking under her pillow. Now, I'm Jewish, not Christian, but I understand you hang up a Christmas stocking for everybody in the house. So when daddy dies, what do you do? Well, I read another article that said, don't hang up the stocking the first year. That's another possibility. Don't hang it up. He's not there anymore. You got to get real. You got to, you know, realize that he's died. So, you know, you can pick any one of these options. Uh, making a journal, sleeping with the stocking under your pillow, or not putting out the stocking at all. And finally, tip number 10, avoid malls, shopping malls. You see things you would buy for the one who is gone. And you see the happy couples when you are no longer a couple. And you see the cherubic face of a little boy who looks like the one you lost. And you hear music that makes you sick. Remember, you can um, turn off the radio and TV. You don't have to listen to it. You know that. You just don't have to listen to it. 
So there are things to do. The firsts are difficult. The first year is difficult. In the words of a caring friend of mine, have a Christmas. You may be hard put to supply the adjective, and that is okay. Now, if you want to see where this, um, if you want to go and see a copy of this article, this list, you go to Susan Dunn, S-U-S-A-N-D-U-N-N dot C-C. Okay? Susan Dunn, and you'll find it somewhere, somewhere um, on that website. That's her website, okay? All right, so let's move on. I wrote something a few years ago in my book, A GPS for Grief and Healing. By the way, um, I want to thank all of you who have begun to purchase this book. Uh, I know because, you know, I make a couple dollars on the book and I get a check from Amazon when you buy a book. So I want to pre- I want to thank you. I'm very grateful to you. If I could autograph your books, I would. If you ever see me in, in person and you have a book that I wrote, well, I'll be happy to autograph it. However, uh, so thank you first for uh, purchasing my book. I'm proud of that book, and I have my favorite, probably you'd call it a blog, is called The Empty Chair at the Holiday Table. And I'd like to read it with you and discuss it with you. The festive holiday tables were filled once with the loved ones who've been part of our holiday meals for as long as we can remember. Some were our grandparents, some were our parents, some were our spouses and siblings, and some were our beloved children. Last year, They were sitting right there in their chairs next to us, laughing and celebrating. How should we respond to the empty chairs, to the emptiness that fills our hearts with such sadness? Holidays are supposed to be such a time of joy, but how can we be joyful without them? Their chairs are empty, and our hearts are filled with heaviness. What do we do? I'll stop for a minute. It's true. How many of you are sitting at Christmas dinner and crying the whole dinner, unable to enjoy the dinner because you were thinking about Pops, who had died this past year? or someone else that you loved. And they're sort of like the elephant on the the dining room table. Everybody who's sitting around the table knows they're there, but nobody knows what to say. And so it's very possible that you go through the whole meal without saying anything. 
Well, that's not going to make you feel any better, is it? You know what I'm talking about. Because you experienced it last week at Christmas dinner. We have lost something profound. And we must realize it and verbalize it. We have lost our loved ones. Those who have taught us, raised us, and been our role models and teachers. They are gone now. We are left to go on without them. And it hurts so badly. They were connected to our lives for so long, and now, suddenly, they're not here. A part of them still lives inside us. That's a very important line, if I may say so myself. A part of them lives, still lives inside us. See, one of the points that I like to make is that death only takes away the physical relationship. But it it has no power. Death has no power over what makes them them. That is, what makes you you, which you can call your soul, when your body dies, you're still there. Your soul is still there. And people who knew you and loved you are, are, are going to remember. And they're going to talk about you. And they're going to tell stories about you. And they're going to cry when they think about you. And they're going to laugh when they think about you. Most importantly, they're going to take the best parts of you. And they're going to make those parts their own. You know that's true. I remember when my grandmother was alive. She was the most pious, religious woman I ever knew. And I'll tell you a very interesting story about my Bubby. Uh, Ten years ago, when I came to Colorado Springs to be the rabbi of this congregation, a member of mine said, I'm going to fix you up with a friend of mine. She does um, readings. She does readings. And she's going to tell you what's the story, what's going on with you. Well, part of me was poo-pooing the idea because I'm a, I see myself as a rational person. Not, I'm spiritual, but I ain't crazy, if you know what I mean. And I'm not into woo-woo stuff. But okay. So she was giving it to me as her welcoming gift to the congregation. And I was very happy to accept it. So... One day comes, and I go, I make an appointment, and I go into this uh, therapist's office. She wasn't a doctor, but she was a therapist, counselor. And she said, okay, lie down on that table. I said, do I really have to do that? She said, yes, you really have to do that. Okay, so I lay down on the table. She said, this will take an hour. I said, great, what am I supposed to do for the next hour? She says, doesn't matter. You can think, you can close your eyes and take a nap. I don't care what you do, but I'm going to 
put my hands and touch your aura. I learned about auras. Everybody's got auras right above your skin. Uh, a lot of you know more than I'll ever know about auras, but she says, I'm going to feel your auras, and then at the end of an hour, I'm going to wake you up if you're asleep, and I'm going to tell you what I discovered about you. Okay. And I'm thinking, this is not going to end well. Because I was a little nervous. I'd never done anything like this before. Okay. So I lay down on the table, and I probably go to sleep, because that's me. Uh, I go to movies. I fall asleep. What can I say? If the TV program is boring, I go to sleep. Okay. So I went to sleep. I took a nap. An hour later, she taps me on the shoulder, and she says, sit up slowly. Don't sit up quickly. Sit up slowly. So I sit up slowly. She says, sit in the chair over there. I want to talk to you. Okay. So I said to her, so good. So you had me for an hour. What did you learn about me in the last hour? So she said, we were not alone. I said, what are you talking about? We were not alone. Yes, we were. There was you and there was me. There wasn't anybody else in the room. She said, that's what you think. I'm telling you, we were not alone. I said, okay, I'm game. Who else was there? She says, there are a whole bunch of people there with us. Uh, part of me is thinking she's crazy, but okay. There are a whole bunch of people there with us. And they were all singing your praises and telling me what a wonderful person you were and how much they loved you. Well, now I'm interested. Wouldn't you be? So I said, what else did you learn? She said, well, there was a woman there that was sort of leading the pack. She was standing in front, and she was smiling and laughing, and she had a big smile on her face, and she was talking a language that I did not understand. I said immediately, that was my bubby. She loved me. She had 12 kids, and I was the firstborn of her last daughter, her last child, my mother. She loved me. I was her favorite. There's no doubt about it. All the other grandchildren are, are not happy with me because they know Bubby loved me the most. What's the point of the story? The point of the story is I spent a lot of time with Bubby. And even as I tell the story now, and the goosebumps, you know, are all over me, I remember my Bubby. She taught me how to be Jewish. She taught me how to be ethical. She taught me how to be loving. She taught me, basically, how to be a rabbi. She taught me how to deal with other people, how to help them, how to care for them, and how to lead them. She taught me that. I used to spend the nights at her house on Friday nights uh, before the, during the Sabbath. Sabbath begins for Jews uh, sundown Friday night and ends a little after sundown on Saturday night. And I just remember what a wonderful time 
we had. We used to walk to synagogue on Saturday on Shabbat morning. And that was a great, great experience. I loved walking to shul. That's how we say synagogue. I loved walking to shul with her on Shabbat morning. And we met people who were walking and we talked to them. And it, it was it was a wonderful experience. What's the point of this story? The point of the story is that she died, but she didn't die. She died physically, but she's still here. She's still here. I'll tell you one quick story. Um, according to the Bible, we're not supposed to kindle a light on the Sabbath. So she didn't touch lights. She didn't turn on the stove. She didn't use electricity, nothing. Next door to her was an apartment house. And the, the superintendent's kid, who was about five years old, would come over every Friday night. After we were finished with dinner, he would turn off the lights, he would turn off the stove, and she would give him a piece of sweet candy. And he was thrilled. Saturday morning, Shabbat morning, he would come over, knock on the door at 8.30, and he would reverse the process. And she would give him another piece of candy. I learned that lesson from her. How do you be nice to other religions? How do you be nice to other people? That was my Bubby. She died, and I still see her now when I close my eyes and bring her up. We're going to take a break. I'll be right back. Don't go away. Follow us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. When you're wandering after a life loss, you're really wandering in two directions at the same time. Part of you wants to go back, and part of you wants to go forward. That was also true of the Israelites when they were wandering in the desert with Moses. They didn't want to go back to being slaves, of course, but they did want to go back to the familiarity of home in Egypt. It was predictable and known, and they were afraid, like everyone is, of the unknown. Find out more in Rabbi Mel Glazer's award-winning book, A GPS for Grief and Healing, available at Amazon and in Kindle format. Believe it or not, the Bible talks a lot about grief and healing and can be a powerful source for us to move forward. For example, after Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt where they'd been slaves, they wandered in the desert for 40 years before God would let them into the promised land. God only wanted those who'd been born free, who'd never known slavery, to enter Israel. Those who had been slaves had to die out before their descendants would be allowed to enter the Promised Land. Find out more in Rabbi Mel Glazer's award-winning book, And God Created Hope. Available at Amazon and in Kindle format. Success starts here. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. It's your world. You are listening to From Morning to Morning. 
To find out more about our program, visit GriefOK.com. Again, that's GriefOK.com. Now, back to From Morning to Morning. Hello again. This is Rabbi Mel. I'm back. Oh, we've talked about so many things tonight. Um, We started talking about the deaths of Carrie Fisher and Mama Debbie Reynolds. And then we talked about what you do before and after a holiday uh, meal where somebody has died since last year. And we're finishing up with my article called The Empty Chair at the Holiday Table. And I just spent a little long bit of time uh, commenting on a phrase that I have a sentence says, a part of them still lives inside us. And I told the story of my bubby, my, my old Jewish grandmother. Well, she wasn't old once, but to me, she was always old. When your grandmother always old? Well, Bubby was old. I remember at the end of her life, she, um, forgive me for reminiscing, but sometimes I have to. Uh, it's part of my grief, too. Uh, when she was nearing the end of her life and she was in the hospital or she was at home in bed, in hospital bed, they would invite me, the family would invite me over to her house to sing Yiddish songs because she loved Yiddish and Hebrew songs and I was good at it. And I have a pretty fair voice, they tell me. And so I would go over there and I would sing uh, Yiddish and Hebrew songs and she would be happy and I remember that so when I say you know if somebody is is either dying or has lost somebody dear there are things you can do for them you figure it out but there are things you can do for them let me go on with this um, blog of mine so I just said, a part of them still lives inside us. Now, this is, you won't hear this from too many other grief people. And we have lost even more. We have lost the order and the familiarity of sitting down together in the very same seats that we sat in last year at this time. We felt safe and comfortable Everyone was in their correct chair. All was right with the world. But now the order is all wrong. The seating is different because different people are sitting in those chairs. When our loved ones die or divorce out of the family, we are adrift without rudders to guide us. That's why I call my book a GPS for grief and healing, because we're adrift. We don't know what to do, where to go, and how to get there. Not only do we miss them, but we miss the certainty of the familiar. Who will sit in Papa's chair this year? How could anyone fill his chair or his place in the family? When a patriarch or a matriarch dies, the family roles are now also adrift. Who will be the next family leader? Who will chart the family's emotional direction? 
Who will be the historian? Who will be the family spokesman? Who will we call when a family crisis occurs? Death affects us in countless ways, many of them coming to the surface at our holiday celebration times. That's mine. I didn't get that from anybody else. There's not only one death, there are two deaths. Every time somebody dies, not only do they die, but their place in the family is left empty, and that's another death. So we have to deal with two deaths at the same time. You know, you got a favorite aunt, and you can talk to her about anything. For me, it was Aunt Fanny. She was never judgmental. She loved me to death. And, and when everybody else said no to me about something, I knew, I knew that Aunt Fanny would listen and Aunt Fanny would love me. So who do you have that will always listen without judging you? Who do you have in your family? Are they healthy? Are you that person? What's going to happen when you die? I don't know. I have no idea. But you better start thinking about it. Because the day will come when the family order won't be like it is now. And you're going to have to deal with it somehow, some way. It's not only the loved one died, but it's their place in the family that also died. And that you got to deal with. Now I'm going to tell you how to do that. What shall we do? How can we begin to create a new normal for our family? First, by verbalizing our feelings of loss. At the beginning of the holiday meal, why not take a minute or two to remember those not there this year? Go around the table and tell stories. Laugh together at the good times of the past. Cry together at the profound loss. Make the pain public. Share the past so that you can then begin to create the future. Those you've lost may not be with you in person, but they will always, always be with you in spirit. Make their spirits a part of your family's holiday meals, and then your loved ones will live on in your lives for as long as your memory of them lives on. And then you will have found and discovered one of life's great secrets, you are still alive. And by the way, just so you know, that's what I do at every funeral that I ever officiate at. I don't do biographies at funerals. Sorry, folks. You want me to do your funeral? I'll be happy to. But I ain't going to tell people about your life story. I'm going to ask your relatives, two or three of them, not more, because funerals shouldn't be so long. I'm going to ask them to tell stories about you. And they will. And they'll cry and they'll laugh. And then when they're done, I get up and I say, if you want to truly mourn this person, 
If you really love them, you will take some of the good qualities that you've heard about over the last 20 minutes, you will make them part of your own selves, your own lives. Thus, they will be remembered. Again, don't ever forget this. If you don't remember anything else I ever teach you, remember, they only died physically. What's really important about them will never, ever die. You are still alive. You can still be vibrant, passionate, and committed to yourself and your family. Yes, life will be different without those you've lost, but you will help create the new life that will bring you and your family a new order, a new familiarity, a new sense of power and creativity, and that is certainly worth a holiday celebration. That's the end of that little piece from my book. So what's the point of the last paragraph? Life is going to go on. You didn't die. You're still alive. I know many people, and you could be among them. Somebody that you love very much dies, and you will say to somebody, part of me died with them. I wish I were dead. I want to jump in the ground and be buried with them. Yes, that's normal. Don't ever feel guilty about saying that. That's how much you love them. If you were married to them for 40 years, well, now what do you do? How are you going to live without them? How are they going to live without you if you go first? I don't know. You'll figure it out. That's what living is all about. Living means you got to figure it out. And you will. I know you will. You're good folks. You're smart. You've experienced loss before. Remember when your first doggy died when you were six, you worked it out. You figured it out. Some people get married again. Some people don't get married again. There's no wrong or right answer to this. But whatever is going to happen is going to be new. Your reality is going to be new. It's not going to be the same as it was before. Nobody's going to call you at 3 o'clock on Sunday afternoons to say hello. And you're not going to call mama on three o'clock at 3 o'clock on Sunday afternoons because she ain't there anymore. She's not there. She's gone. And you're going to have to live without her. And you will. You absolutely will. You can't heal unless you're broken. Grief is a great teacher, as I am fond of saying. We only learn anything about ourselves, really learn anything about ourselves, by how we deal with the losses in our lives. And I like to say birthday parties are just wonderful. But what do you get? Fatter. Yeah, you get some presents, which you probably don't need. But so be it. You know, 
But from funerals, you learn about yourself. They are your teachers. Death is your teacher and must be honored and must be respected. You have to honor your teachers. Death is the number one teacher you'll ever have. So you can prepare for it. You can write an ethical will to your kids and your family. You can make sure they don't keep you alive so long, too long. I have a client who, you know, he's 89 years old and he's dying. And they want to do more surgery on him. For what? I don't know. Yeah, it'll keep him alive, but what kind of life is that? Don't let anybody keep you alive to law. So we talked about lots and lots of things tonight. And I've enjoyed being back with you. Next week, we're going to have a special guest, Dr. Stan Goldberg. Dr. Goldberg just published a book called Loving, Supporting, and Caring for the Cancer Patient, A Guide to Communication, Compassion, and Courage. There are a lot of people listening to me now that are doing just that. They're caring for cancer patients, loved ones who have cancer. It's, it's terrible. I mean, it's, it's just so sad, you know, and they're dying right in front of us. And, and well, anyway, Dr. Goldberg is going to give us some tips and some hints and all that. Meanwhile, I want to thank you for listening. Uh, don't forget my book, A GPS for Grief and Healing. All you got to do is go to Google and type in GPS for Grief. GPS for Grief. And magically, you will be transported to Kindle, where you can buy it and learn more from me. If you want to write me, I am at Rabbi Mel at GriefOK.com. Rabbi Mel at GriefOK.com. That's going to do it for tonight, my friends. Next week, I hope that you'll be with me again. Have a happy and healthy new year. I'll see you next week. I'll see you next year. Bye-bye. Thank you again for joining Rabbi Mel Glazer for From Morning to Morning. Please tune in again next Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time and 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. We're wishing you strength and hope in the next week.